Well, this morning we are going to begin a four-week series through May, and then, of course, the, what I just discussed, the format changes will go into effect the first Sunday in June. And really, this is going to be a series focused on why we do what we do as a church. Pastor Adam, incidentally, is doing the same thing right now in student ministry. He's going a little bit slower than we're going to go in our four-week adult Sunday school series. But look, we want to answer some of the questions of why do we teach like we teach? Why do we focus on Bible exposition for all ages, from children's ministry all the way through? Why aren't we doing seminars focused on rational arguments for God's existence or focused on evidence of intelligent design and creation or things like that? Why are we simply teaching the Bible at all ages and in multiple avenues? Why do we support missions work that's focused on training pastors and church planters in handling God's word? Why do we avoid evangelistic shticks and gimmicky programming? designed at reaching the lost instead of just focusing on taking God's word to those who need to hear it. This was one of Dr. George Zemick's primary ministry focuses. As you've heard over the last month, he, uh, and, and actually last probably six weeks, Dr. Zemick is now with the Lord, but he had a profound impact on the Expositor Seminary, on Pastor Rick and the men who teach there, and then on myself, Pastor Adam, Pastor Aaron, and many others. And he has a book called Doing God's Business God's Way. And I've unashamedly stolen that title and put that on the top of your handout, Doing God's Business God's Way at MRBC. Just as a personal testimony, that was like the class. And at TES, it's called Apologetical Methodology. And he reviews and critiques what we consider often as classical apologetics. And then as we move through the semester, you come to a point where he says, well, what are we supposed to do as ministry? What is what is the philosophy of ministry built on God's word? What does God's word tell us about how we should do ministry? And just to say that that's a formative class in the way that I think about ministry, and of course, the way we do ministry in our church would be an understatement. It was really a way to come by and be like, okay, I, I knew this is what I, we were supposed to do, but I really couldn't tell you why. And Dr. Zemek very simply through a sustained exegesis says, this is, this is why. I want to address something, though, because anytime you say you're doing something God's way, it sounds arrogant. You agree? I mean, we do ministry the way God said we should do ministry, and it just automatically sounds like, whoa, how, how do you know? What gave you the corner on that? And so I just want to address that. Like, God's way, really? And this is the antithesis of arrogance. It, it's actually to show that, no, 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 this is doing ministry in a way that's utterly void of human-centeredness, utterly devoid of our own abilities that we have innate and our own creativity, and we're just yielding to God's word. So to say that we're doing God's business God's way, to say that we want to do ministry the way that God's word intends or would say that we should do ministry is to say we want to do it dependently and in accordance with what God's word lays out for us. We just, we just want to be faithful and obedient. So it's the opposite of saying, well, we've somehow you know, got the market cornered on really ministry the way that God would give his stamp of approval to. No, it's just dependence on God's word that has led to these conclusions. We want to talk then about how ministry fleshes out in ministry to one another, in our church, in ministry to the lost, and in the formal teaching ministries of the church. 
And that's what you will look at the next three weeks. We'll look at ministries, the ministries of the one another's here at MRBC. What are our focuses? What does God's word indicate about that? Ministry to the lost. And then lastly, in the formal teaching ministries of the church to wrap up this series. But it's my task today to sort of stitch together and give you an overview um, that leads really to the undebatable conclusion that the word of God used by the spirit of God is the only way that sinners are saved and sanctified. To which I'm sure you all say, all right, can we just be done with Sunday school? We already believe that. And that's good. But we want to be reminded of that and how that then truth works itself out in the way we do one, the one another's. The way that we would prioritize how we reach the lost. The way that we organize ourselves when we have formal teaching ministry in this church. And that's what the subsequent weeks will consist of. If you look at your handout, you're going to see there's an awful lot of Bible verses, and you're going to say, are we going to get through all these? And the answer is no, we're not. I've given them to you. All right, I'm basically, especially the, this, this first section, just going to summarize. We're not even going to have you turn. These are for you. These are mostly reminders, things that we've taught in various other avenues. But don't be nervous on my behalf, okay? We're just going to fly through those things. Um, I know that I've got two hours worth of material here <clears throat> in our 35 minutes. And that's not even a concern for me, okay? We're not gonna try to look at these. You can, you can study these on your own. But I just wanna give you a, a summary, really. What's the, what's the conclusion? The when I say the necessity, and when you hear in the future how the necessity of word ministry, what do I mean? Well, by word ministry, we mean any ministry of the word of God, whether that's in evangelism, whether that's in one-on-one -on -one discipleship, whether that's what I'm doing right now, whether that's what Pastor Rick does when he preaches to us, whether that's what happens on Wednesday nights, whether that's what happens in children's Sunday school right now, any children's ministry outlet, that's word ministry. That's what I mean by that. And that is what we're about at Mission Road Bible Church. And the reason why we're about that are below and in summary form for us. But I just want to summarize what all of this biblical evidence, the conclusion that all this biblical evidence leads us to up front, and then we'll talk about it also in summary fashion. Since Adam's fall in the garden, all men and women are dead in trespasses and sin and utterly hopeless to solve the problem that they have apart from God's initiative. Man's sin problem is most acute in the lost, but believers, as we know, still deal with the effects of sin. Furthermore, Satan is active in working against both the lost's acceptance of the truth and also in believers seeking to deceive and to trip up. Against all of those <laughs> oppositions to the truth, those problems, we find that both salvation of the lost and sanctification of believers, both of those realities are God's business. He's the one who must take initiative in both of those things. He's the one who has said that he sovereignly by his grace works both of those things to completion. And he has chosen the weak, you and me. He's chosen to use weak and feeble men and women to carry out his mission of saving and sanctifying by communicating his word. Because of that reality, because sanctification, because conversion or salvation on the front end, our God's business, our ministry must be built upon the means that he has given us to carry out the task that he's entrusted to us. It's pretty straightforward, right? And while that sounds very simple, 
you don't have to look around in evangelicalism very far or even outside of evangelicalism within Christendom to see ministries that are not based on those simple conclusions. Ministries that aren't a sort of a logical outworking of, well, if people are lost and God's grace through the use of his word applied by the spirit are the only means of bringing lost men and women unto salvation, the only means of sanctifying men, what else can we do except teach God's word and apply God's word? But many ministries have added their own wisdom have added things that are carried out on their own efforts. And that could be because they don't believe the effects of sin are as robust as scripture says they are. Maybe they don't believe in the sufficiency of God's word and that it is efficient and effective to carry out the tasks that God has said it will carry out. There's a lot of reasons, but our purpose in this isn't to directly critique what's out there, but to simply focus on what we're doing here as a congregation. I've given you a summary quote from Dr. Zimmick in your handout. This is kind of the end. This is the, the summary of, of our whole series, really. God has indeed abundantly provided divine resources for us to do his business his way. These are his special weapons for true spiritual warfare. Our tangible weapon in hand or our sufficiency in hand, that's the word of God. And our tangible weapon our sufficiency in heart is the person of the spirit of God himself. He says, spiritually considered, these divine nuclear weapons are not optional, but absolutely necessary for ministry. And then really this sentence summarizes where you're going to be taught. The effectual dynamic of the spirit of God working with the word of God alone can save and sanctify sinners. Our, that's our philosophy of ministry. That God's word alone used by the Spirit of God, can save and sanctify sinners. We have no power on our own to offer some, something that can convert the lost. We have no power in our own to sanctify ourselves. We have no wisdom apart from God's wisdom in his word. We have no effective power even in using the word apart from God's spirit, wielding it and utilizing it. And so to say that we want to do God's business, God's way, or ministry, God's way is to say we want to do it dependent on his spirit, dependent on the word, trusting in the work of the spirit and in the work of the word to carry out all the things under our mission statement as a church. So what I've put before you, the next headings, the, optical, the obstacles of sin, self, and Satan, then the implications of God's sovereign grace and God's business, and then the provisions of God for ministry his way, that's essentially a bullet point summary of, of a book or of an entire semester's class, all right? But I've given you these verses, and I'm just gonna talk through the headings, and, and we're not really gonna turn here. I want you to do that on your own. Again, I see these as reminders, as things we've taught in various other contexts in our church and will continue to, to teach but we're summarizing these, these are, these are the, all the points that then lead to the conclusions of how do we minister to one another? That's Pastor Aaron next week. How do we minister to the lost? That's James the week after that. How do we do this when we gather as a church and formal teach, formally teach and equip? And that's Pastor Adam in our last week. So I'm, it's my job to just sort of set the table with these, the teaching of scripture that then demands that we do ministry in a way that prioritizes the spirit of God working with the word of God to save and sanctify. So the obstacles of sin, self, and Satan. Really two big phrases that you often hear when we talk about the effects of sin. 
That is total depravity and total inability. The biblical testimony of humanity's corruption is what we call total depravity. And there are several elements to this, but we see that because of Adam's sin, because of what happened in the garden, all of humanity, of course, including Adam and Eve, and then all subsequent generations are in sin. We're born in sin. Romans 5 indicates that. Genesis 3 gives us the historical narrative that shows that. So when we say total depravity, what do we mean? Well, we mean that sin proceeds from inward corruption that's there from conception. David says that in Psalm 51. In sin, he was conceived. It doesn't mean that his mother sinned and that resulted in his conception. It means he's acknowledging that, that the sin that abounds, the transgressions that abound, actually proceeded from a corruption that he was born with. Ephesians 2 as well. Dead in trespasses and sins by nature, children of wrath. The testimony that describes humanity's corruption and the pollution of sin is manifold. You can see many verses that paint that picture, right? Most famous to us may be Psalm 14 and then Romans 3, there is none good, there is not even one. All have sinned. We see that every part of humanity is affected by corruption. That means all of us, internally all of us as well, our hearts, our minds, our flesh. It's just, we're affected by sin. It can't be compartmentalized. What is the primary effect of this, uh, this depravity? Well, it works itself out in what we call total inability. And that would be to say that our wills are in bondage to sin and our corrupt nature. Jeremiah 13, 23, right, says, we have as much power to change that as an Ethiopian does to change the color of his skin or a leopard does to change the color of his spots. That's how unable we are. Because of this, 1 Corinthians then 2, 14 teaches kind of the, the double bad news. That is that our bondage to sin renders us both unwilling and unable to respond on our own to spiritual realities. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul before verse 14 is talking about the role of the Spirit of God in revealing God's will that the apostles then were carried out to reveal to others. And he says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. There's the willingness or unwillingness for their foolishness to him. So he's unwilling. Because of sin, in the natural man, he has a perpetual refusal to accept the truth. But it's not merely unwilling. He goes on. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That's where we talk about unable. This is what we might say the perpetual impossibility of rightly appraising or valuing the significance or the truthfulness of God's word. This doesn't mean that simply uh, unbelievers are not smart enough to comprehend the words on the page of Scripture. It's not what that means when we say understanding. 
means that they're not appraised rightly. They're not examined rightly, valued rightly. The, the worth, the truth, the significance. The grammar and the syntax of John 3.16 is simple and straightforward. This verse does not teach that an unbeliever reads John 3.16 and says, I just simply can't comprehend what these words even mean. This is some sort of a proposition or, or whatever. I, I, no, that's not what it means. It's not like you or I would, well, maybe not all of you, me, looking at a complex math equation. My head hurts and I'm just like, I don't, I don't understand what this means. Or a foreign language. That's not what he's referring to here. He's saying that an unbeliever, someone lost apart from God's initiative, reads John 3.16 and says, doesn't even have the, the ability to rightly appraise the value of that truth. Unwilling to accept it and unable to rightly appraise it. That's total inability. It's a bleak picture, isn't it? Came here to be encouraged this morning, and thus far I've not encouraged anyone. These are important reminders, though, when we get to the encouraging part. That mainly when we talk about total depravity and total inability, we're talking about man prior to conversion. However, disciples still have what Doc Z famously said was a homardiological hangover. Homardiology is simply the doctrine of sin. We have a sin hangover. The effects of sin still remain. We're no longer in bondage to sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin if we're in Christ, but the effects of our fallenness are still there. Thus, we have an inability to sanctify ourselves. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we, we lie. Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you going to be perfected by the flesh? That's impossible, Paul says in Galatians. Similarly, Philippians 3.3, that those who are true in Christ place no confidence in the flesh. Why? Because the effects of sin remain. It's God's work. Our sanctification, while certainly involving our effort and our willing because of our hearts that have been regenerated, ultimately God works out his salvation in us, as Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 teach. So we still have a sin hangover. That's an obstacle. And Satan, he works against the unbelieving and the believing. He, 2 Corinthians 4.3 tells us that he blinds the minds of unbelievers. So Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that unbelievers are unable and unwilling. But he gets worse. 2 Corinthians tells us that Satan is actively at work even blinding the minds of unbelievers so they don't accept the truth. So there's innate, that is the obstacle of self because of sin that doesn't want to accept. And then Satan himself is actively working so that they don't accept as well. And then we see from Scripture, and Pastor Rick's going to certainly spend a lot of time here in Ephesians chapter 6, that believers deal with the obstacle of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that he's concerned for that church, that they would be deceived as Satan deceived Eve even. And then Ephesians 6, 11 talks about the schemes, the schemes of the evil one, the schemes of Satan that are employed against believers and require us to take up the full armor of God, which incidentally that chapter ends with Ephesians 6, 17, right? Which is what? The sort of truth used by the Spirit of God, right? That's, that's the conclusion 
the Holy Spirit using his word. So that's, if you want to call it the bad news, that's the obstacles of sin, self, and Satan that demand that we do ministry a particular way because those are obstacles that God has given us means to overcome. But the means to overcome those obstacles are very particular. And they flow from understanding that salvation is God's business. That's the next point. These are the implications of God's sovereign grace. God's sovereignty and salvation implies that salvation, of course, is his business. And when we talk about ministry that addresses the lost, the obstacles of sin, self, and Satan, we say, well, what are we to do? Well, we do what God has given us to do, ultimately because of his sovereignty and salvation. So we want to remember that the salvation of the lost is God's business. This is throughout the pages of Scripture. I've given you two of many, 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 many Scriptures. Psalm 3.8, salvation, it's the Lord's. It belongs to him, right? It's his plan. It's his work. It's for his glory. Everything about salvation ultimately belongs to him. Titus 3, he saved us, right? Read all through there, but he saved us. When? When we were lost. Not because of our own ingenuity, our own wisdom, or any work in and of ourselves, but because of him, his work by the washing of regeneration by the spirit of God. So salvation is the Lord's, but also sanctification. The sanctification of the saved is God's business. Romans 8 tells us that's a part of God's unbreakable chain of salvation from election and calling all the way to glorification. It's his work. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will see that through to completion. And I referenced earlier, Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13, and we see that he is at work in his children. So if you have all these obstacles according to Scripture, we rightly understand the implications of sin. We rightly understand that it's God must take initiative to save and that it's God's gracious work in the lives of his people to sanctify. Then we're utterly dependent on him for these outcomes. So what what has he given us then to carry out ministry? Because he has called us to take ministry to the lost and ministry in the church. So you have all this bad news. We're corrupt. The lost are corrupt. They're unable and unwilling apart from moving of the spirit of God. Believers deal with this hangover to where we still deal with the effects of sin and resistance in our hearts to the truth. What about the fact that the evil one is at work to prevent the lost from believing on top of their own rebellion and rejection and recalcitrance? And then for believers, he seeks to deceive. And yet we're reminded of God's gracious initiative. But if we're called to carry out ministry, what are the provisions he's he's given us? And that is the dynamic word of God and the dynamic spirit of God. Look at Jeremiah 23, 29. Here's testimonies to the power of God's word in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock. 
God's word is powerful. It's dynamic. Flip back just a few pages to Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7. Starting in verse 7 and reading down through 9, Jeremiah is complaining about this task he was given. But listen to what he says about the word of God that's in him that, that has come out. We just read about it being a fire and a breaking rock. He says, oh, Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. So Jeremiah didn't have the greatest perspective about his ministry, although it's true that was happening. But if I say, and this is a proper perspective, I will not remember him or speak anymore in his name. Listen to his testimony about the word of God that he was charged to have. Then in my heart, it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in and I cannot endure it. This powerful word that Jeremiah was given to herald forth in accordance with God's will is powerful. Jeremiah sensed that internally. He knew that he had to carry out the task that was given him. He proclaimed it. Then all the way back, Jeremiah 5, verse 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire. And this people would, and it will consume them. The word is powerful. God's testimony to his word is that it's active, it's powerful, it's dynamic. Another example, 2 Timothy, chapter 3. It's a philosophy of ministry for children's ministry. He tells Timothy to continue, verse 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Verse 15, and that from childhood... You have known the sacred writings, scriptures, the Old Testament, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to the famous bibliological verses that we often use about the inspiration of scripture and our trust in the sufficiency of scripture for how we carry out ministry. But did you see that? The power of God's word, it's dynamic. It is able to give the wisdom that leads to salvation. And then you have scripture's testimony about the dynamic spirit of God. And again, we're going to see this in Ephesians 6. I've given you some summary points there. The spirit is the originator of the new birth or conversion. We see an example of that in John 3. The spirit blows where it wishes. But you must be born of the spirit to be born again. Second Peter tells us that his role in scripture being written We've referenced 1 Corinthians 2 multiple times, but there it talks about the Spirit wielding his word. And then John 16, he convicts with the word. I encourage you to go back and study those things. All of those truths, those realities, lead to the conclusion that we must do ministry in a way where we're using the provisions God has given us, that we're trusting the Spirit to wield his word, which means that to be faithful, we must set forth the Lord's powerful word. That's why 
word ministry is prioritized at every level of ministry. That's why you hear us say it's not simply about what we do here when we're gathered, though this is critical, but also what you do when you gather, whether it's one-on-one, whether it's at care groups, whether it's in counseling scenarios because you come to seek wisdom about something in particular, you seek wisdom from one another. All of those things are word ministry because that is the provision that God has given for his people to be sanctified, for the lost to be saved. Because apart from the spirit of God using the word of God, there is no salvation and there is no sanctification. There's no other way. This is how God has said his work will be carried forth. And he's given that charge to us. Weak vessels to carry forth the precious truth of the gospel and his word. I want to transition from that then, which those things will be fleshed out, and just give you a brief overview of discipleship. And in particular, I want to need to see the agency of God's word and how the scriptures talk about discipleship. You see our mission statement, we exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all else in every dimension of life as regulated by the word of God. And sometimes we may hear disciple and discipleship and think that that's a buzzword for a particular type of ministry. And so it's important that we just note a couple definitions because you're gonna hear, you may hear regularly from various ministries in our church. You should be discipling, you should be in a discipleship relationship, all that, those things. What, what do we mean? Well, a disciple is simply a follower, a learner of Christ. It's not a ministry method. It's essential to who you are. You are a disciple if you're in Christ. When we look at scripture, sometimes we, we see in the scriptures that there were unbelieving disciples. That was, there were followers that were following him. We may call those believing unbelievers. We see that especially in John. But in our vernacular today, a disciple means a Christian. There's no Christians who aren't a disciple. Then we say discipleship, we're simply talking about our own following after Christ as disciples. When we talk about discipling, we mean meeting at Starbucks and talking about God. No, that's one application, right? That's not the definition, right? Of course, nobody laughed. Come on. <laughs> right? Sometimes we think discipleship is a particular thing that we do that looks the same way every time. And admittedly, it often does look like meeting over coffee and talking about God. That certainly is an application of discipling. But it simply is, in Mark Dever's definition, deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. And the reason I say what I say about meeting at Starbucks and talking about God is because this, right now, is discipling. Sunday morning sermons are discipling. One-on-one interactions are discipling. Care group interactions, counseling one another formally are all forms of discipling because discipleship is simply learning all that Christ commanded and seeking to apply that in our lives as we're made more like Jesus. So discipleship and discipling are not reserved for the elite. It's not a special class for the super gifted in the church. It's not if you're really serious, you're a disciple and you're interested in discipling, but only if you're a really serious super Christian. That's not the point at all. All of us are disciples. All of us require discipling. So I've given just four points here, and what I find compelling about these is just to see, at least in the examples I'm given, 
of the agency of God's word in discipleship. So for making the case that our ministry is word-based in every facet, I just think it's helpful to see how the scriptures connect to discipleship from our calling all the way to our continuance and our, and our complete, being completed to God's word. So we see in one place, for example, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, in our calling, disciples are called by the word. It says, it was for this he called you. Well, what's this? Well, verse 13, salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. Here, the spirit and the truth, of course, again, hand in glove. It was for that, that salvation, that he, God, called you. How were you called? Through our gospel, through the preaching of the gospel. That's what Paul's referring to. Proclamation of the word of God that he was entrusted with. Disciples are called. How are disciples made? Through the gospel. Disciples are called by the word. That's our, the origi- our origination, if you will, our conversion, right? The word of God, obviously instrumental. No one's converted apart from the gospel. No one's converted apart from the word of God. Paul here is talking about the preached word. Remember back in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, when we came to you, you, we thank God for you because when you received the word from us, you accepted it, not simply as the word of men, but as the word of God. Throughout his correspondence with the Thessalonians, he refers to the word and he's talking about the word that was heralded, the word that he taught, the gospel that he proclaimed. So the agency of the word, disciples are called by the word. Discipleship also involves conformity. So you're called to be disciples, but disciples conform to the word. The Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Maybe you've heard said before, we want disciples, not decisions. We don't employ a ministry methodology that is herd them up and brand them. You've heard that said, right? Get everybody together, stamp them with the Christian brand and send them on their way. No, discipleship is certainly belief and conversion, but it's continuance and conformity. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing and teaching. Discipleship involves teaching. What? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Disciples conform to the word. Discipleship involves being taught what Christ commanded, not simply responding to the gospel one time as a decision. You see this idea in Romans 1.5 when he talks about bringing about the obedience of faith. The gospel went forth through Paul to bring about the obedience of faith. If you listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, as Paul talks about ministry, he says this after he tells Timothy, teach and preach what I've given you to teach and preach. Verse 3 of chapter 6, he says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, that is, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. We may say, those who don't conform to the teaching of Christ and with the doctrine that conforms to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Disciples conform to the word. So, of course, ministry 
Discipling must be centered around the word. You can't be a disciple if you're not conforming to God's word. Discipleship is also continuance. Disciples continue in the word related to what I just said, disciples and not decisions. In the parable of the soils or parable of the sower, as Jesus explains the good soil in Luke 8, 15, he says, but the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. What's the difference between this soil and at least two of the other ones? It's not the initial acceptance and reception of the word. It's continuance in the word. Disciples continue in the word. Jesus said in John 8, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, stand firm. On what? Stand firm and hold fast to the traditions which you were taught the word of God, the apostolic teaching. Disciples continue in the word. And then disciples are completed. Discipleship does involve completion. Disciples are being transformed toward the end and will be made complete on the final day. And that task is carried out by proclamation of God's word. Unsurprisingly to you, right? Colossians chapter one. In Paul's ministry summary, verse 28, we proclaim him, that is Christ, verse 27. Okay, what's that look like? What's the manner? What, what's this proclamation consist of? Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom unto what end? So that we may present every man complete in Christ the completion of disciples, the ultimate maturity of disciples that comes through the admonishing and the teaching of the word of God. Paul said, it's for that, that ultimate end that I labor, striving. So Paul's efforts involved, but according to what? His power, which mightily works in me. And there's certainly an implied reference to God's power involved, the spirit involved in the ministry of the word that's carried out. I know that that was quick, but what I want, to see, want you to see in this overview of discipleship in just these particular verses is the agency of God's word. You're going to hear in the subsequent weeks that because of the conclusions that I said earlier of, about sin and God's sovereignty and the provisions he's given us, what does ministry look like? It, it's word-based. And there's no way to comprehend discipleship or being a disciple or even what discipling looks like apart from the word of God. It's involved in everything from your call, from when you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you became a disciple through the gospel call, through your being taught to conform to the word, to the Lord's word, to the standard of sound word, to all that Christ commanded, that you remain in it together. And ultimately it's the word of God taught that will make you complete on that day. Your perfection comes by the spirit of God applying what? the teaching and admonishing, to use Paul's terms, that come from the ministry of the word of God. And we're gonna focus on that. Again, not to say some sort of arrogance or to be prideful, we do God's business God's way. With humility, 
Say we, we are laboring, we are striving, we're endeavoring to do God's business God's way, and he has given us a clear path and provisions that are stated, and that's what we want ministry to be about here at MRBC, and we want to just remind ourselves of what that ministry is and what it looks like. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the provisions of your word and your spirit we've heard so much about in the recent weeks and our preaching here and we've been reminded of we know we depend on you and your work in us but also you've given us a task to carry forth your word to use your word in our relationships as we admonish and teach one another we ask and I ask that you would give us a fresh awareness of the supremacy of your plan and your work of grace and the instruments you've given us to be a part of this ministry you've called us to, namely your word, that we would trust that and that we would trust the working of your spirit with that word as we're faithful. Encourage us this morning as we interact with one another in the next moments and as we sit under the preaching of your word again this morning in our second service. We ask these things in our Savior's name. Amen.